not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Melfi and Prezzo Show. I'm your host, Melfi. I'm your host, Prezzo. All right. Big Melfi, today we've got someone very special. Very, very special, Luke. Yeah, I know you've been looking forward to this. Mate. Oh, mate, tell you what, it's been a while, been a while. The man, um, the legend, big the vertical. Yeah, the vertical, the cooler, yeah, big Stan Efferton. Fucking massive. Looking jacked, Stan, looking jacked. welcome, mate, how are you? Good, man, it's been good. You know, we got the lockdown up here, as you guys are aware, so, uh, but I got a garage gym, so I'm, I'm blessed. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I hate to rub that in to everybody who hasn't been able to train the last couple of months, but I've been eating and squatting. And I, I'm feeling great. <laughs> yeah, I can, we can tell. You look bigger. <laughs> you look put on size. What's, what's going with you? you yeah, I, you know, I, that's all I've been doing is eating and training the last two months. I haven't been traveling, and so I did, I did add a few LBs. And, yeah, mate. Um, no. You know, hopefully I'll... I'll have to get back in shape when this whole thing's over. You know, everybody hanging around the refrigerator all day is not a good thing. <laughs> plenty, of, plenty of monster mash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I saw some of your videos you've been posting. You're still, still lifting some weight. Yeah, I'm having fun, man. As long yeah. as I stay healthy, I'm not trying to hurt myself anymore. But uh, I, there's some things I can still do reasonably well. And yeah, as long as the joints don't hurt and I can get up the next day and, and not limp, I'm, I'm happy. I'm 52 now, so I'm I'm trying to be somewhat longevity focused. Yeah, I, and yeah. I I'm over all of the injuries. My knees are better, my hips, my back, everything feels great. So I'm not trying to hurt myself again. So what have you done to fix those problems? So have you implemented some strategies or? Yeah, I've got some great strategies. They kind of come from you know my personal experience and a lot of. Uh, reading of um, Dr. Stuart McGill's work from the back mechanic and, um, uh, you know, following, uh, hold on here. Did I lose you there? Yeah. yeah, it would, yeah. There we go. Sorry. And following, uh, you know, the folks at Barbell Medicine do a really good, good job with pain research um, and advice. And it's really kind of a simple method. Uh, it's, it's three steps for me. One, uh, eliminate the source of the problem. So if squatting's hurting your knees, then either you got to eliminate squat or you got to reduce the weight and shorten the range of motion until such time that you can build back up. But yep. you have to find a, and then second, you find a pain-free movement. And if you can squat with a shorter range of motion with less weight pain-free, then you should do that. Uh, but if you can't, then you have to pick a different exercise. And I always like the banded leg press. Uh, so pick a, pick a, uh, you know, a pain-free movement. And then move a lot. And part of that was the three 10-minute walks a day that Stuart McGill loves and I've, I've been touting for many years. Actually, over 10 years ago when I was training with Mark Bell in Sacramento, we would have a huge squat day. We'd squat 800, 850, something like that. The next day, I would have a recumbent bike that I would ride three times, 10 minutes, three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The frequency is what really matters. It seems that if you move a lot, uh, the bike was particularly beneficial because it was all concentric motion. It wasn't any eccentric loading. And so it just pumped a ton of blood into my knees. And I found that that's the best method for recovery for just any joint 
is yeah. movement that drives a lot of blood with frequency. Three 10 minute rides is far better than one 30 minutes. The, the, uh, the, the consistency of doing that uh, just really helps. The, you know, all of your joints are synovial joints. There's very little uh, capillary innervation in there amongst those, uh, those cartilaginous tissues. And you have to, to drive nutrients, blood and oxygen into that cartilage and only about 10% of that is achieved through uh, diffusion, which is, you know, a, a gradient. About 90% of it comes from convection, which is movement. Yep. So you have to move, and then that, uh, you know, the lymphatic system from the movement will help get the, the you know, the, the, uh, the bad stuff out uh, okay. and, uh, you know, the waste products. So that's really what it comes down to. There, there's, I've always said in my videos, I said that things that are done to you or for you are never as effective as things you do for yourself. Mm. And I've just never found passive therapies to be nearly as effective. Things like ice or electric stem or physical therapy or chiropractics. Uh, you know, those interventions, what I call passive interventions, even injections in my knee, yeah. prolotherapy, PRP, TB500, BPC-157, you know, I, I did that, all of that for many years, growth hormone, you name it. I put it in my knees to try and help them. And I only got, you know, modest results. And most of it was probably just from uh, jabbing a needle in my knee and then resting for a couple of days. Uh, but it wasn't until I started utilizing, consistently utilizing those methods, eliminate the source, find pain-free movements, move frequently, that I was able to actually completely recover from almost 10 years of chronic tendonitis in my knees and uh, you know very bad hip pain i've had multiple uh you know back pain over the years that i was able to resolve <laughs> yeah, yeah that's the power lifter's life and i get yeah. it you know yeah. uh, but yeah. i just i found that there are there are solutions if you're willing to to be diligent enough and consistent enough yeah. sleep is obviously hugely important salt was hugely important vitamin d3 was hugely important uh, but the movement was was the critical Thing. And that's not to say that physical therapists and chiropractors can't provide some temporary intervention, such as, uh, you know, an ART, an active release therapy to facilitate movement. But in the absence of then moving, uh, it's just going to you know, recur and you'll be right back at the, the therapist's office trying to get, uh, you it's know, fixed, band, as it were. Yeah. 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 Now that's, um, yeah. I mean, a lot of people out there in that same boat, I reckon who yeah. still just to this day still go and seeing a physio, seeing a chiro. Yeah. Uh, basically, like I said, it's, it's a Band-Aid solution. You know, you're not fixing the root mm. of the cause. Do you find that... It is. And, you know, one of my concerns is, and I, and I don't, you know, I don't want to shit on anybody's profession. I think those guys can be very helpful in, in certain circumstances. But 90% of all pain resolves itself within four to six weeks, what we call spontaneous recovery. So whatever method of intervention that you're using at the time that you spontaneously recover, yeah. you will attribute that recovery to that intervention. And that's, if you went to a PT, you'll say the PT helped you. If you went to a chiropractor, uh, if you got electric stem, if you wore a copper bracelet, you'll say that that's what helped you recover because 90% yeah. of people recover from pain within four to six weeks spontaneously. So I'm real cautious about anecdotes uh, and, um, and testimonials and I look to the research and, and that's you know a lot of what what I'm suggesting actually supports itself in research and the studies have been done they've put um, you know just 10 minute walks uh, with a sample group next to a group of specific therapy 
and found that they had equivalent outcomes if, in fact, the 10-minute walks didn't actually outperform specific therapy for uh, any type of bodily pain. So that's, that's why I recommend those things is because they've been studied and they seem to be uh, uh, you know, very successful for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. So question, how, how many days? So you've obviously been doing 10-minute walks now for, what, 10, 10 years, you reckon? Yeah, about that. I'm at three, three walks a day, uh, very consistently, seven days a week. Yeah. And it, it's not, you know, it's not all for pain. It's as I've, you know, said in my, my rants, you guys have heard me talk about this obsessively, but it's for digestion, it's for blood sugar control. It's obviously good for joints. It's just, it has so many incredible benefits. Cardiovascular fitness, it's a brisk walk. I do get my heart rate up. So all of those things contribute. And I use it you know, obviously with my big athletes, Hofthor and Shaw and the rest of those guys, they all started implementing three 10-minute walks or 10-minute bike rides a day, uh, you know, to improve their, their uh, blood sugars in particular. Yeah. But I also use it with my dieting, uh, figure physique, bodybuilding bikini athletes all the way up to the Olympia level. Uh, they don't do any cardio. Uh, yeah. Stephanie Sanzo out of uh, Australia, uh, Nadia Wyatt, third place in the Miss Olympia. She does three 10-minute walks a day, no additional uh, cardio, you know, what you consider to be cardio fat burning type exercise. We, we burn fat with uh, caloric restriction and we build muscle with the hypertrophy training and we utilize the walks, you know, purely for digestion and blood sugar control. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I actually did a blog post on that the other day. I've obviously listened to a lot of your stuff, but basically saying, is yeah. running making you fatter? Yeah, that, uh, and that's... That's, there's plenty of articles that have been written to that effect. You look at uh, even to the point where um, I think I saw on T Nation some years ago. It was a great article. I included it in my ebook, as a matter of fact, and it uh, it talked about a um, a triathlete whose body composition was far worse when she was jogging 26 miles and swimming two miles and biking 100 miles than when she stopped doing triathlon uh, competition and started doing CrossFit. Uh, her body composition was much better under that kind of explosive weightlifting type of training. Yeah. So, you know, I always say that the, uh, you know, the uh, body responds to the stimulus provided, you know, form follows function. So I'm really cautious about what kind of activity I throw at my athletes because uh, their body's going to respond in kind, you know, marathon runners look like marathon runners and sprinters look like sprinters. So I'm, I'm really specific about the type of, uh, uh, of exercise training you know that yeah. being very different than exercise yeah. that yeah. i prescribe for my athletes and they're, they're all different but um it, it has that that uh, focus in mind do you believe that's purely because of the stresses on the body the excessive obviously the cardio and stuff is that why you'd suggest no i, I think cardio is great for those people who need it you know an mma fighter might need some some more muscular endurance uh, obviously a runner would soccer players, even though those are still explosive kind of, um, you know, competitive sports, football players, uh, they'll, they'll have, they'll, I'll put more cardiovascular type fitness into their program, even though it'll still be explosive rest, explosive rest. Uh, so it really kind of depends on the demands of the athlete's sport. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the ultra endurance stuff. It, it, you know, I always said that, uh, <laughs> You know, if, if, if you want to be healthy, don't compete. And that fitness and health are two different things. And, uh, you know, the fitness required to, to win a marathon or to be a UFC champion or to be, a, you know, a, a lineman in the NFL uh, isn't necessarily healthy. No. And just 
the idea of just running more uh, or doing ultra marathon or ultra endurance type of activity, that actually can have a very adverse effect on the enlargement and thinning of the heart wall. And you see yeah. uh, people dropping in their 50s from, from those kinds of problems. So, you know, competition in general is going to, I think, yield some adverse effects on your health. And uh, we just try and mitigate those behind the scene. Yeah, there's a lot of oxidative stress, isn't it, on those marathon runners? Yeah. 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 Even uh, great longevity uh, researchers like Dr. Peter Atia, who's a Stanford surgeon, who's an oncology surgeon at Johns Hopkins. He, he's, I think he's got the centurion or centenarian uh, focus for longevity. He's trying to, to live to 100, but uh, not just uh, live long, but live well. He used to be a, uh, an ultra-endurance athlete swimming long distances, and uh, he discovered you know, many years ago that, that that wasn't contributing to his long-term health. He had a lot of muscle wasting. He actually had some high blood sugar, some uh, prediabetes sort of problems because of the muscle wasting. Uh, uh, we see that oftentimes in, in under-muscled longevity athletes, particularly the ones that are sucking down a lot of vegetable oils and, and uh, simple carbs loaves of bread, gallons of Gatorade, and uh, just tons and tons of oil on their salads to try and get the calories that they need. Uh, it, it just, it doesn't create, you know, a, a healthy environment. And that's not to say that bodybuilding, powerlifting, and strongman is healthy. I'm just saying that, that you have to address those things uh, kind of behind the scenes. You got to mitigate some of that damage so that people can have a longer, more successful career. And that's, that's what I do for, for all of my athletes. You know, people associate me kind of with the the big guys, the Hofthors and Shaws of the world, and um, you know those guys have to watch blood pressure. They have to watch metabolic syndrome, fatty liver disease, you know, insulin resistance. We, you know, we 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 tackle those very aggressively from uh, the get go, so that they can perform better and have uh, you know longer, better health and compete. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we kind of want to tap into that. Uh, obviously, for just breaking the the world record deadlift um bit of controversy yeah. between him and old eddie hall obviously um, yeah. <laughs> um but in terms of his nutrition did, did you have to change much did he have to put weight on um leading into that or was it pretty much the same as he's been doing yeah you know i'll just give you a little history first and then we'll jump into that he came to me about four years ago he was 435 pounds and he said he was getting fatter not stronger and I immediately knew what the problem was. Uh, you know, a lot of big athletes that maintain uh, a lot of body weight for, for you know, too long a period of time end up with the metabolic syndrome, the fatty liver, the insulin resistance, and the high blood pressure. And that's going to uh, put a quick stop to long-term progression. Uh, mainly, you're going to start partitioning nutrients towards fat instead of uh, into muscle. So the first thing I had to do was diet him down. I had to take 40 pounds off him, bring him down into 390, 395. Generally speaking, it's about 7% of their body weight is kind of what I shoot for. And that's, you know, that takes an athlete that's willing to have a long-term view. You know, how many strong men or powerlifters are willing to lose 30 pounds? Because obviously you're going to have a, you know, an associated strength loss with that. And they define themselves by their strength. And so I, I just ask them to periodize their weight the same as they would their strength training. You know, you can't train heavy all the time, all year round. And uh, he was certainly willing to try it. So we brought him down. And then we took him back up. And one of the key things there is that to, to resolve fatty liver, it's a couple things. One, we had to get rid of polyunsaturated fats. The seed oils seem to be a necessary precondition for uh, increasing the, the uh, susceptibility to liver fat. 
So we got rid of all the seed oils and they're in just about everything. That's your three C's and your three S's, your canola, cotton seed, and corn oil and your soybean, safflower and sunflower, all that garbage that's in yeah. most restaurant food. And so we got rid of that. We threw some choline at them and I did that with six eggs a day. That was a thousand milligrams of choline and choline can reverse and prevent fatty liver disease. And so between those two things and the weight loss, uh, we found out he was vitamin D deficient, and that has an inverse relationship with blood sugars. And so we got him to supplement vitamin D. Obviously, being in Iceland, he's not exposed to enough sunlight. Yeah. Uh, plus, vitamin D can kind of be a proxy marker for those other issues, high blood pressure, high blood sugar. That'll just start to drive vitamin D down just as a, a lack of, of, uh, of metabolic health. Uh, and then lastly, if I can remember here, uh, we, uh, uh, the CPAP. That was a huge one, particularly for blood pressure. Uh, I saw this with Lane Johnson from the Philadelphia Eagles. He had about a 12 or 15 point elevated blood pressure above what we thought was reasonable. Uh, and so, and he wasn't wearing a CPAP. Neither was Hofthor, neither was Shaw, neither was Dan Crean. I mean, none of them. It just amazes me that these guys, as big as they are, you know, if you snore and wake up tired, and, and you probably need a CPAP. And so we gave that to him, and that brought his blood pressure down significantly within a very short period of time. It also helps with uh, cholesterol and um, helps with uh, thyroid function. So all those things were, were beneficial. And lastly, the 10-minute walks. We implemented those right away. So we completely changed his metabolic health. And then I was able to load him up with calories. But this time, we didn't load up with pizza, pasta, and pancakes. We were staying away from seed oils. And we, we drove mostly, um, you know, once we got the, the foundation foods in, which, you know, included uh, some fruits and some potatoes for potassium, a little bit of yogurt for calcium. Uh, obviously, plenty of red meat. I'm a big fan of the iron and B12 and zinc uh, in red meat. And then we drove white rice primarily uh, for his carbohydrate. He was starting to consume uh, 1,200 grams, almost 5,000 calories of just white rice a day. Much. And in order to make that consumable, uh, it's actually a much easier to consume and digest and uh, carbohydrate than the oatmeals and, and breads and uh, beans and uh, pastas and pancakes. It's, yeah. That's one of the reasons I eliminate those is because they're so they're just so much harder to digest in those quantities. Not necessarily that they're bad for you per se. You know, in, in a you know like an oatmeal or a you know a legume of sorts, uh, it would just be in a much smaller quantity. And it's individualistic. You know, your digestion is the big thing. So I use low FODMAP foods, those fermentable oligodiamonosaccharides and polyols. They're just easier to digest, less gas. And then uh, we sprinkled a little dextrose on his rice, and it really helps uh, with pancreatic amylase release, so you can digest starches a little better, so you're hungrier sooner, and you can eat more at, at a given meal, in addition to the fact that it stimulates a little more saliva, so that just, the, just eating it, just the process of consuming that much doesn't become so painstaking. But uh, that, that kind of is the manner in which we went at this. And then uh, as you get closer to a competition like this big pole, Obviously, mass moves mass, and so we wanted to pack on as much mass as possible, at which time, you know, he would throw in extra calories as he completed his meals, maybe at night in particular. Uh, he would throw in, he kind of has a fan for uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, uh, <laughs> one of his favorite treats. Uh, but, you know, we'll throw in some higher calorie stuff, uh, usually towards bedtime because uh, you have longer to digest the food, so you're still hungry when you get up in the morning. Yep. My biggest concern with things like pizza uh, is that, that you're full for too long. It just kind of weighs heavy on you. I prefer to drive carbohydrates than fats. I think that once you get an adequate amount of fats, which probably is 0.4 grams per pound, um, so for him, 
you know, we, we weren't taking in more than 150 grams of fats a day, or I tried to keep it under that. Yeah, well. And it, it's hard to do, but, uh, you know, we just use a leaner meat to, or a fat-free yogurt uh, and, you know, try and keep the eggs down a little bit, but still six, at least six to 10 a day instead of 24 to 36. I, I had uh, Brian Shaw eating 36 eggs a day at one point, six yeah. with each of six meals. So then I can drive a lot of carbohydrates and those, you know, with the 10 minute walks, with the work volume and, uh, you know, just with as much muscle mass as he has, I think those are more anabolic. They have a better opportunity to be utilized as muscle glycogen and they can carry more water and then therefore sodium. All of those things can be better for performance. Uh, driving a whole ton of fats doesn't give me those advantages. So I just, I don't do it. So how many calories was he on? What was he on? He was north of 10,000. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A lot of food. When you put a, so to speak, two, almost 200 kilograms, 440 pounds, you know, 460 is like, what's his weight? What does he weigh up to? He got to 454 pounds. He was 200 and, what was he, 205 kilos or something? Yeah. yeah. Heavy. <laughs> it's big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was about the heaviest he's been. We, we had him, we had him at, at 200 and, we had him at 200 kilos at the world's strongest man in the Arnold or, or a little more than that, 202, but he got North of 205 kilos for this poll. Yeah, definitely. And is there, is there a way or do you have to come up with something for say, everyday people, you know, across the world to implement those kinds of strat strategies that you have implemented with a high level athlete? Do you have, do you have something? Yeah. You know, a hundred percent, everything I said, I use with any athlete, we just adjust the total calories to whatever, calorie surplus allows them to grow most people like now i'm working with uh, rob kearney the uh, world's strongest gay he's getting ready for the overhead log press uh, record and he only eats about 4500 maybe 5000 calories on a big day so okay. uh, you know it, it's really individualistic you don't have to go out tomorrow and eat 10000 calories and if you tried it would be a big waste of time wouldn't give you any benefit too much of a surplus is what drives that extra fat gain too fast because yeah. you're only going to gain muscle at, at a you know at a at a at a certain pace and you can't uh, you can't force yourself to gain more muscle faster that's that just takes time and patience uh, and the right you know well-rounded program with the sleep and the training obviously so i recommend this all the same theories uh, or or recommendations that i just talked about for hofthor uh the low fodmap diet the cpap the 10 minute walks the uh, uh, keeping fats a little lower and driving carbs high utilizing uh you know easily to digestible foods all of those things uh, plenty of red meat yogurt fruits potassium from potatoes like twice as much potassium as banana you want to get 4,700 milligrams of potassium a day. That's huge for performance. Salting all your meals, taking sodium before and after training. All of those things I recommend for all of my strength athletes and performance athletes, football players and, and the like, because it really benefits performance for uh, hypertrophy, all of that stuff, recovery. Yeah. It's just my method. Yeah. So you, you certainly lean towards more of a higher carb. I mean, like, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the whole carnivore thing with Sean Baker and Paul Saladino and all those guys at the moment, real preaching that higher protein. Um, Gabrielle Lyons, she's another one, high protein. Um, but in terms yeah. of trying to build muscle and perform, you always lean more to your protein at your maintenance and more of a higher carb. A hundred percent. Yep. And I, and I know, and I, and I appreciate 
all of those people you just mentioned, I've been on their podcast or have yeah. them on mine and yeah. Yeah. I love what they do, but I would recommend what they do initially for uh, digestive distress as yep. an elimination diet yep. uh, or for weight loss for people who have uh, type two diabetes pre or type two. Uh, those are excellent programs. I've, I've oftentimes to many clients with autoimmune disorders or IBD or IBS or Crohn's disease or uh, diabetes type two. Uh, I've oftentimes recommended starting out with steak and eggs, steak and eggs, steak and eggs, eat till you're satiated, just eat that for the first 30 days and they drop weights, their blood sugars come down, their insulin comes down, their digestion improves. Mm. And then I slowly, you know, we'll reintroduce to them other foods, uh, be just because for compliance long-term, I've, I've found that uh, most of the studies suggest that people like a little more balance. Even Dr. Peter Atia, who's a, a big time keto enthusiast, uh, stopped doing keto recently, as did Mark Bell. Um, it's just, it, it's, it's not, for the vast majority of people, it's not sustainable long term. And I hate saying that because some people do it, you know, yeah. sustainably for, and enjoy it. And it may be what they prefer. It, you don't get as hungry. One of the biggest benefits to to keto or carnivores is that you're, you're, uh, you're more satiated. And so your ad libitum uh, calorie consumption goes down. That's an actual uh, benefit. But uh, I am concerned about the fact that when you lose glycogen, you lose the three parts water for every part glycogen, and which also is 70% sodium. Uh, so people, a lot of people suffer from energy. They get low energy, they get that keto flu, uh, I try and mitigate that by making sure they add adequate salt to their meals and take salt before and after training and just sodium tablets if need be. Um, but I like to eventually throw in some fruit and to get some more potassium from a potato, a little yogurt for calcium is really important. And it's not just for bone mineral density. It's for nerve signaling and for muscle fiber contraction. It's, a, you know, it's very, very important. So I, I do like to throw in a, a, a wider array of foods uh, for, for performance in particular. Yeah, yeah, no, hundred percent. Um, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I mean, since since been following you a couple of years ago, you know, we 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 both have sort of implemented the vertical diet. Um, you know, to a certain degree, there's still we still eat, you know, chicken and other foods here and there. But eighty percent of our diet is definitely beef, mince, and rice, made with potato. That's what I have every single yeah. day with eggs. Beef, yeah, <laughs> beef, mince, yeah. rice, potato, beef, mince, rice, potato. And you can, you, but you can certainly notice the difference. That's for sure. Um, in terms of digestion as well, you know, obviously us being yeah. both athletes and myself as a CrossFitter, there's a lot of stress on the body and a lot of stress on the gut. Um, so yeah. obviously eating the foods that you recommend um, has helped a lot in terms of the di digestion aspect. Yeah. And I worked with, you know, as you know, Camille LeBlanc and Ben yeah. Smith and Becky yeah. Voigt and uh, mostly it was hydration and digestion. Those were the things yeah. we focused on with them. They were already great athletes. So we just tried to uh, get them a little more sodium. Uh, I'm obviously a big fan of red meat. Once I put that into their diets, a lot of those people, athletes in particular, women in particular, end up with low iron and low B12 and they get anemia and then they get amenorrhea and they, the female triad, and they start getting a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, bone mineral loss and, and they end up at the doctor's office getting a shot for, yeah. you know, iron and B12 and usually some uh, glutathione or something like that because their energy levels are in the tank. Uh, and then iodine also. Another big thing I put into athletes' diets because those people who sweat a lot uh, and aren't consuming, you know, usually these health conscious people are, are, uh, are, are taking in sea salt or pink salt, which doesn't have any iodine. And so they have to find an alternate source in their diet. 
so once I add all of those things, uh, they just feel better and perform better and, and uh, they have more stamina and endurance. They don't hit the wall during training and they recover faster. So those are things are all real critical. It's, it's kind of funny because I've just started uh, eating, obviously increasing my calories up to like say, before I was probably eating two seven daily and now I'm like say four and a half thousand, four three and I'm, st- I'm just hungry. You know what I mean? I'm eating yeah. instead of food. And like, I'm even saying to Luke, sometimes I'm eating this food. I'm like, fuck, I'm hungry again. I just want more rice. And I'm like, you know, yeah. it's funniest how your body will change and respond to increasing calories, you know? And I've gotten leaner, you know? Yeah. So it's just, it's funny. Yep. You're, you know, eat the right food. Yeah, like. when I'm trying to control hunger, I'll use a higher satiety food like potato and orange. They're really high on the satiety index. But when I'm trying to give an athlete uh, more calories and they're having a hard time eating more, then I'm using the white rice with a little bit of dextrose on top, not for calories, but to drive appetite again. And uh, a little, just that little three ounces of orange juice. People always want to have a whole glass. I'm like, no, just three ounces. And it, it, yeah. it, it has a lot more to do with the fact that it increases body temperature and it can increase uh, the conversion of T4 to T3 in the liver, which is great for your basal metabolic rate. Uh, and just, again, like you said, an hour later, you're just ravenous. You're hungry. Right, 100%. <laughs> Can't stop. <Yeah. laughs> yep. um, with the salt, Stan, I was, um, obviously you're saying that pink Himalayan salt, which is what most people will, you know, these days are using. When it comes to the iodized salt, would you still recommend an iodized table salt? Yeah, I would, you know, and at first you read Dr. D. Nicolantonio's book, The Salt Fix, he, uh, yeah. he's a bit of a, he's a, he's a bit of a salt snob and he, he wants you to go so far as to get uh, Redmond Real Salt because yeah. it's from a, you know, an underground uh, uh, source that doesn't have any microplastics and it's an old seabed that's not, uh, you know, it's not infested. And I, and I like all of that stuff. It's, it's fascinating to, to listen to the talk about, uh, you know, pink salt and the minerals um, unfortunately, the, the, the amount uh, of minerals in Himalayan pink salt is of such small amount that it really doesn't give you a physiological benefit, to be honest. You can get more of those from, from eating a good array of foods. Um, but I come across some of the uh, writings by, um, uh, uh, let's see if I can, names come across me now. It was a book called The Bad Food Bible by Dr. Aaron Carroll. And he's a dean of research in Indiana, and he's got a great team over there, and they produce a lot of videos um, on uh, on YouTube called Healthcare Triage, and, uh, and and he kind of dispelled some of those myths. I know that that iodized table salt is bleached, and I know it's um, you know got anti-caking agents in it, but in the grand scheme of things, uh, those aren't going to have any adverse effects. Uh, I'm I'm really chasing iodine, and you know to be honest, I I. Uh, promote taking in cranberry juice, pure cranberry juice. It's very iodine rich. Just three ounces of it, I think, is about 200% of your daily RDA for iodine, which is 125 micrograms. And uh, that ha- might have some additional benefits, um, obviously, for, uh, for the urinary tract. So I recommend the cranberry juice, although it's hard to find, like I think in Australia and some places in Europe. It can be very expensive, and yeah, yeah, a lot of this the cranberries are grown in the wetter climates up here yeah. in the northwest in Washington yeah. and Oregon. And, uh, but in the absence of that, uh, you know, iodized salt is is uh, you know I just want an iodine source. Yeah. Sea kelp is another alternative. I don't like people to take in more than a milligram. I'm not talking about mega dosing it. I would you know just want to make sure they have some source in their diet and they understand that 
that athletes who sweat a lot, a lot of these research, research was done on soccer players in particular, okay. and they had about an 85% deficiency rate amongst them because uh, they sweat a lot and they're active, and that's just something to be considered. And iodine isn't just important for thyroid function, although it is, you know, try iodothyrone, and it's, uh, iodine's a, a, yeah. a critical element of that. Uh, it's a part of the process for digestion. It's uh, along the pathway to create hydrochloric acid in the stomach, so it can be important for that. Also huge for the immune system. It displaces things like uh, fluoride and um, bromide uh, from uh, your, your, uh, your, your system, which, uh, you know, that's going to be really important for protecting you against some of those toxins. So if somebody takes thyroid medication because they have a slow thyroid, that doesn't fix the iodine deficiency, which has many other uh, important functions in the body. It's in every cell in the body. So uh, I, I do want to get a food source in there. Pastured eggs has some iodine in it. And depending on what the cow eats, uh, uh, milk and, and yogurt has some iodine, but they would have to consume uh, some food source that had iodine. And here in the US in the Northern belt, what we call the goiter belt uh, in the Midwest, is so far away from the ocean, there's just not much iodine in the plant matter that uh, the animals are eating or that, the, you know, that we're eating the plants uh, that don't have much iodine in them. So we just don't, you know, a lot of people don't get a good source and they end up with goiter and it can cause actually some uh, uh, deficiency in IQ in, in newborns and adolescents. We saw that uh, when we tested um, you know, World War I and World War II recruits. So it, it becomes you know, really important to, that iodine is, is a critical part of the diet. Such a domino effect because there's so many people who are suffering with like Hashimoto's and things like that. Um, yeah. And, and a lot yeah. of them And that's not necessarily to say that iodine's a cure. And of course, if you've got, you know, high uh, hyperthyroidism, then iodine is not recommended. Of course, yeah. Uh, hyper, high thyroidism, uh, hyperthyroidism is usually uh, a, an autoimmune disorder. It's usually from a digestive problem. I find it oftentimes in people with IBS or IBD or people who have low acid and they're just not uh, you know, breaking down their proteins or, or absorbing their minerals well enough. And, and they've got to go on an elimination diet to try and improve that, uh, their gut health first. I use that word gut health somewhat carefully because it, it's such a misused term. But, yeah. uh, you know, basically, if, if, you're, if you're not absorbing your, your vitamins and minerals, you're not breaking down your proteins or if something gets into your small intestine, and, uh, and it can penetrate that, that single cell wall and, and wreak havoc in your bloodstream, then that's going to cause a whole host of potential autoimmune disorders. So, and that's where you obviously use um, digestive enzymes as well, yeah? I know you're big on them. Yeah, no, not really. Digestive enzymes, a betaine HCL pepsin is the one, and there, there is an, you know, an enzyme in there, obviously, the pepsin, but I'm mostly focused on the acid level. Okay. Uh, the hydrochloric acid, which declines with age, and it can also decline if you're taking antacids, and uh, whether prescription or over the counter, uh, or it can decline if you're just eating all vegetables and you aren't getting, you know, good protein matter in. So, uh, animal protein matter in. So, uh, I do focus on people with GERD or people who are having a hard time digesting their food. I'll, I'll focus. I'll try and see if they're having any problem with low acid, and if I can bring that up, then they'll they'll have a much easier time getting more uh, you know not what you eat what you you're what you digest and absorb they'll be able to get more out of the food that they eat definitely may is there some things you know the youngest stan would have believed in you know say 10 20 years ago they would he was certain about they'd you know fight black and blue over 
that now he's realized he's gone to total 360 about is there some things with food nutrition training or anything that yeah uh, a host of things if i knew then what i know now man i've been i feel like i would have been able to do so much more so much earlier in my life when my window of opportunity you know my age wasn't catching up with me i set my world record when i was 45 and it was grueling um you know when i was a younger man i i uh, made many mistakes. I did the pizza, pasta, pancakes, uh, you know, the gallon of milk a day diets, and I got fat. And, uh, you know, my blood test showed all the same problems, with metabolic syndrome, uh, elevated blood pressure, you know, insulin resistance, uh, just, a, you know, obviously not the right road to take. Uh, and then I also tried at one time just eating a ton, a ton of extra protein in order to gain weight. Remember, I was 140 pounds in college. Yeah. Yeah. My first bodybuilding show, I weighed 158. And I thought in order to grow, I needed to get a ton of protein. And I, I found out I couldn't gain weight. Protein overfeeding is a great way to help somebody lose weight, hence the, the carnivore diet. Yep. Uh, the more protein you eat, the harder it is to eat because it's very satiating and has a high thermic effect of food. Every 100 calories of protein you eat, you only really net out about 70 because it's kind of an expensive uh, food to break down metabolically. So it's yeah. what they call the thermic effect of food. So I made that mistake as well. Uh, also, in terms of training, uh, I just thought that the stronger I got, the bigger I would get. And I, I, I had no clue. You know, I was in my early 20s and I studied exercise science. I have a science degree from the University of Oregon, but you know, we just didn't know then what we know now. And so, you know, I would be squatting as heavy as I could. I got to the point where I was squatting 600 plus pounds in workouts, but they were half reps and they were ugly. And uh, I just never really built the kind of, of uh, mass that I could have benefited me more in, in bodybuilding until I met Flex Wheeler in 2009 and, and we started doing a whole lot more volume uh, training and we got off of the heavy stuff. I, I didn't do any squats or deadlifts or bench press with Flex. We, we focused almost always on uh, just more mind muscle control, more range of motion, uh, higher repetitions, a little shorter rest periods, uh, still around 90 seconds, two minutes, but yep. uh, just more volume and frequency. We trained everybody part twice a week. We usually did splits, AM, PM. Uh, and, but he had me eating four pounds of steak a day. I was back up to a high protein diet, yeah. uh, but also 600 grams of carbs uh, dieting for a bodybuilding show. So he knew what fuels I needed. Um, I'm telling you, you eat a ton of top sirloin steak, you're going to get very lean. It's, it's, a, it's a game changer. Uh, I think not just you know, for the leanness of the protein, but also all the micronutrients in it. Yeah. And we've seen this in studies on eggs. We've, we've had groups of, uh, of men... Uh, and they equated for protein and they equated for calories. And one group had egg whites, uh, had a lot of protein from egg whites. And the other group had a lot of protein from whole eggs. And the whole egg group uh, significantly outperformed, not just in hypertrophy, but the strength performance was outrageous. Uh, you know, the hypothesis was, or, or at least I think their conclusion was, that the micronutrients matter. The, the, you know, the, the cholesterol, the biotin, uh, the, the choline, all those things that are in egg yolks. And I feel the same way about steak. You know, it's got three times the iron, six times the, the zinc, and 12 times the B12 of, uh, of chicken. So I, it's just a far superior micronutrient source, and it's also better in the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, usually 3 to 1 or 6 to 1, whereas chicken and turkey can be 17 or 25 to 1 in your 6 to 3 ratio. And I'm you know, obviously a huge proponent of, uh, of uh, keeping your omega-6s down for oxidation and, and those kinds of things with uh, vegetable oils, et cetera. So, so with, with flexes stuff, were you focusing on, say, on pendulum squats and hack squatting and more, you know, without the heavy barbell stuff? 
No, we would do, uh, you know, we would do leg extensions to warm up. That was our mind-muscle connection. We'd make sure and, and you know, contract and extend and just focus everything on the quad. Then you could really feel your quad when you got them on leg press. Yeah. And we would dump most of our effort into the leg press, but the sets were usually 20 rep sets. And uh, the fourth set of each leg press day was uh, usually a drop set. You'd end up doing 40 or 50 total reps because you'd be pulling plates. Uh, that was just a lot of volume. In between sets, we would squat down and sit in a squatted position, which, you know, is extraordinarily painful. But uh, <clears throat> the, the stretching and, you know, Flex didn't know the science at the time, but just from experience, he found that when you stretch between sets, that it, uh, it seemed to improve uh, muscle uh, hypertrophy. I think Poliquin speculated for a while that, it, you know, it was about uh, fascia fascia stretching, but um, more recently, there's some science that suggests, I think, uh, uh, who is it, uh, uh, it's in his book, Hypertrophy, Chris, uh, oh, it's going to come to me, he also has a book called uh, Strength is Specific, uh, and uh, I can't that. believe it, I'm free. yes, no, 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 not Duffin, uh, it'll come to me, I feel bad, because I actually reached out to, to him for help with a program for an athlete one time, uh, Chris Beardsley. Okay. Uh, has two excellent books, one on hypertrophy and one on uh, strength is specific. They're on Kindle for $2.99. <laughs> Fantastic books. I was just shocked. I bought them right away and read them. It's a deep dive into the science. It's a Brad Schoenfeld sort of production. It's, it's very scientific. Uh, but he in there uh, mentioned that stretching between sets seems to have uh, a, uh, a, uh, an additional benefit to the hypertrophy stimulus, a separate but uh, concurrent benefits to the hypertrophy stimulus. And so maybe after a set of uh, barbell curls, you'll just stand there with 45-pound uh, plates hanging from each hand, just standing there. Yeah. Or in between sets of leg press, you would squat down into a, you know, sit down your ass to your heels and just sit there for 30 seconds. Uh, some folks had speculated that was more of that kind of metabolic uh, type stimulus, but um, it seems that that the stretching seems to, to offer an additional hypertrophy benefit. So uh, there might be some science there, but yeah. nonetheless, I, yeah. you know, Flex had us do that. And I had the, the most significant growth. And I remember this is somebody who'd been competing for 20 years. I had been competing and training very hard uh, since 1986. And it was 2009 that I went to Flex. In 2008, I competed at 224, and mind you, I, I, I purposely tried to diet down to the 225 and under class. Usually, I was about 232, maybe. Uh, I was 252 on stage when I won my pro card training with Flex, and I was as hard. I was, it was ridiculous. So I retained a lot more muscle. Uh, I usually dieted down from around 270, and when I trained with Flex, I wasn't losing muscle uh, at the rate that I had historically. I was eating a lot more, training a lot more, did no cardio, none, zero, whereas previously I would put in my 40 minutes of cardio a day. And previously I was eating egg whites and chicken breast, you know, and this time I was eating four pounds of steak and 600 grams of rice. So uh, two very different training protocols, uh, diet protocols, and uh, two very different results. The side-by-side -side from 2009 uh, to 2000. Eight was uh, just light years difference. It was damn near 30 pounds difference in, in retention of muscle. And, and of course, I won my pro card. So, Bruce in the pudding there. So, do you enjoy like the Milos Sachev type training the giant sets, you know, that extreme volume? Obviously, you need it measurable, but um, like the extreme, you know, a fan of that, no. or is that too much? Or 
What's your? I can't say that. I can't say that I do. And, and here's the reason. Uh, yeah. We know from research, and we've seen over and over now. And you know, uh, Brad just came out with his book Hypertrophy. I recently received a copy from him and uh, and read that. Uh, and he's been talking for years about the fact that whether you're doing five rep sets or 12 rep sets or 20 rep sets, you have equivalent hypertrophy outcomes. But the five rep sets and the 20 rep sets, you, you accumulate significantly more fatigue. Yeah. And that can be a problem over the course of many weeks of training. And so I went for the, you know, flex went to the, you know, mostly to the 12, 12 to 15 reps on most stuff. We only did twenties on leg press. Uh, but remember, you know, for the vast majority of people, natural athletes in particular, you really have to be cautious about that fatigue. Yeah. So uh, I didn't do too many drop sets, giant sets sort of thing. If you equate for volume, uh, it's unnecessary. You can, you can just get your 12 reps in or your 20 reps in and then rest, uh, you know, two minutes and do your next set. Yep. Uh, it, it just, I don't see, the, the science doesn't suggest there's any additional benefit. 100%. I know it feels great. It feels like you're doing more, but uh, I don't think that it's it's uh, turning out, out to provide any additional benefit. And what concerns me most is that people will, will end up accumulating too much fatigue and then that may impact their recovery. And that's, you know, you don't grow in the gym. Uh, yeah. Some people just, they just do too much damage. Uh, and that's another concern is that uh, muscle damage doesn't seem to be the primary driver frequency and volume uh, seems to be the, the greater driver of hypertrophy than damage damage is kind of a, a necessary evil that's going to happen just because you train hard enough but it shouldn't be what you focus on and we learned that from eccentric training yep. eccentric training will create a lot of muscle damage but it's not uh, going to be any more effective or even less effective uh, and maybe for some of those reasons because of the dropout rates and, and you know people fatiguing than just, you know, straight sets. Yeah, and Paul Pollockin was huge in that, wasn't he? He loved his tempo. Yeah, those guys really, they really liked it. Yeah. I think more than anything, they liked taking people into deep water and crushing them so that they <laughs> felt like they got this great workout. And, Breaking uh, that. I'm, I'm much more cautious about that. When I get an athlete, I, I want them to use the scientific hypertrophy principles. I, in, I include a chart that was produced by... Um, uh, it was produced by uh, uh, the glute guy, uh, uh, Brett Contreras. Yep. Brett Contreras put an excellent chart together with frequency, volume, load, intensity, rest periods, uh, uh, periodization, uh, the whole nine yards, uh, tempo. And uh, I include a, a copy of that or a link to his, his stuff in there because I don't want my athletes going to the gym and exercising. I don't want them running around doing battle ropes and you know, jumping up and down like a chicken with her head cut off every 30 seconds, grabbing a different exercise. Uh, it, it's, it's not, you know, the optimal training stimulus. There's only two things you can do. You can lose fat and you can, or you can gain muscle and losing fat is 99% creating a calorie deficit. Yeah. You don't burn off fat with exercise. It's a, the wrong stimulus. We talked about that earlier with the cardio and stuff. It wastes away muscle tissue. It's just not the way to accomplish that goal. So you can lose fat. You do that with a calorie deficit and you can gain muscle and you do that with the most optimal hypertrophy program. And that does not include 30 second rests and battle ropes and a whole host of other, you know, banana Republic uh, P90X type training. Uh, no matter how 
hard uh, someone uh, thinks they're training if oxygen debt and lactate buildup become the limiting factor, then mechanical tension isn't the primary driving force and you won't get as much hypertrophy from that. So besides yourself, mate, who's the guy you'd go to for hypertrophy training? You know, science-based and you don't actually have done it. Who's the guy you'd stand out the most to get you guys big, strong, fast? You know, the juggling well, obviously Smith, Mark Smithell. I'll tell you what, Flex Wheeler's not known for his science background, but, but he's, he's got an unbelievable uh, wisdom about him. And at some point, we spent this whole conversation talking about science-based and, uh, yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. At some point, crossing your T's and dotting your I's stops working. Yeah. And you need to take your body somewhere it's never been before. Yeah. And getting that out of yourself might take a great training partner or a great coach that can make you go places that you wouldn't take yourself. And that's what Flex did for me. And at the time I was training with Keith Williams, who was, uh, I mean, he was a national track champion, a Nike athlete, and he was a NFL football player and also a pro bodybuilder. Uh, and we just, I mean, that's one of the things I talked about in my video, why Westside Barbell athletes are so strong. When you've got a great coach and a great team and you just grind and, and at some point, you're going to have to train very, very hard. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously with, with some sensibility in terms of recovery and deloads and all that other stuff, but uh, crossing T's and dot and I's, you know, yeah. sets and reps and volume and, uh, you know, whatever scheme and, and one-armed tricep cable push-down exercise you think you're going to grow from yeah. stops working. And, uh, you know, you're really going to have to take yourself somewhere. So, Flex Wheeler would be the guy I'd go to if you just wanted to turn your brain off and, and uh, have somebody really get everything out of you. Uh, after that, I think it's going to be uh, uh, RP Strength's Mike Isriatel, who's yeah, okay. not just you know a genius, but he also is in there grinding, doing it himself. You can watch his training videos, and he you know he's just an extraordinary range of motion. He's got uh, takes himself to to some very dark places, and uh, that's kind of what's necessary. Awesome. So I was going to, that probably leads into, I was going to ask you who are your big mentors. So you, would you say, obviously, Flex being one of them? Um, was there anyone else that yeah. you would have looked to in terms of mentoring? Yeah, in bodybuilding, obviously, Flex and in powerlifting, Eddie Cohn. Uh, as a coach, the, the guy that I thrived under for powerlifting was, was Mark Bell. He was, okay. you know, he was fantastic. And yep. uh, he was just really, um, he cared. He was uh, involved. He's uh, you know got a lot of experience and a good eye and videotaped my stuff and uh, you know he was just in my ear. Mark got me to do things that I you know when I hit that 854 pound squat with no knee wraps, I opened with an 821 and it was very hard. Mm. And I wanted to make sure I finished the meet, and so I was going to stop at 821. And I came into the back room and I told him I'm good. That that you know I don't think I've got any more in me. That was a grind. I didn't expect it to be. Um, what I didn't realize at the time is that I was, uh, I was a little dehydrated and I had started cramping shortly thereafter. And so I wasn't as powerful. I wasn't popping out of the hole like I usually do. I had to grind that 821. And I had hit 850 in practice with no knee wraps. And so I, I, I certainly thought I was going to be prepared to. But I've talked a lot about that meat and the fact that I uh, ended up getting dehydrated and I was sucking down a ton of Gatorade that morning and the sugar stimulates the kidneys to release water. And next thing you know, I was pissing every five minutes. 
And so shortly after squats, I cramped up so bad I couldn't even let go of the bar on the bench press. I had to pry my fingers open. Um, and, uh, you know, I almost went to the hospital that day, but uh, Jesse Burdick and, and Mark Bell came in with his big giant tuba of uh, uh, Nun tablets and started loading me up with salt and uh, got me back to life. And I ended up, you know, setting my world record at 2303 happened that day. But the uh, the 854 squat with no knee wraps that I did, or, or now I'm talking about a different beat. I'm sorry. Uh, I came backstage and Mark said, look, I'm just going to scratch your second lift and put you in for a third. And you're just going to sit here and think about it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he started telling me I hit this easy in practice and I, you know, you're going to do fine. And sure enough, that, that lift never would have happened. I never would have set that record if it yeah. hadn't been for Mark Bell, as many records. So and I never would have gotten a, I never would have gotten a pro card in bodybuilding without Flex Wheeler and ended up in muscular development and Flex Magazine, you know, sponsored by those guys. It, it, I think everybody needs a coach. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it behooves people. Uh, I had, you know, like I said, I had a science degree and 20 years of competing experience, and I still sought out the best coaches I could find. And uh, I've, I've used a, a lot of great resources over the year. You've heard me mention many of them. I've learned something from all of them. Uh, and I, and I recommend them throughout all of my conversations and in my book, uh, I'm happy to give credit where credit's due. And even my diet, Vince Garanda was making these same recommendations yeah. in the 1960s. So I'm not running around claiming I invented this shit. It's just that somehow we lost track of the fact of how important red meat and whole eggs and iodine were. Yeah. He was telling people to eat steak and eggs and seek help in the 1960s. So and where that at what point did that disappear? And people started starving themselves with egg whites and chicken breast. And I, I don't know. But, yeah. uh, you know, I, I'm just as happy to revive it. Uh, and I don't have to, to claim as though I invented it. Yeah. Mate, going back to Abthor and stuff, um, you know, you were, Sebastian was your strength coach and stuff. And did you guys to communicate with each other in terms of your training or nutrition and have that sort of periodized together or what was the relationship there? Not a lot. You know, I, obviously I've, I've met Sebastian and, and I know him and I've, I've uh, a big fan of his work. Um, he, he didn't focus on nutrition. I didn't focus on training of uh, Hofthor. You know, I've owned many businesses in my life and I had an accountant and I had an attorney and I had a, uh, a computer programmer guy, you know, uh, and they all had their, their roles and their functions. And, uh, you know, I'm not territorial. I, one of the things that I, uh, you know, I, uh, something that I, I'm proud of is the fact that, that, uh, that it's, I make it about the athletes and not me. And uh, it's a collaboration. And, yeah. you know, I reached out to Dr. Sandra Godick's group, the Heat Institute, to get, um, you know, to get a, a patch test done so I could, um, design a hydration protocol for Ben Smith and for uh, for Brian Shaw, and I reach out to uh, Doctor uh, Doctor Stasha Gominak for for sleep advice and, and uh, you know for these um, stop bang questionnaires and the CPAP interventions and uh, I utilize all the resources that I can. I had Eddie Cohn design a deadlift program for Brian Shaw when I was working with him. His deadlift went from I think 991 in 2017 and to 1000. Uh, I think it was 1,010 in 2018 to 1,030 in 2019. I mean, his, his strength got better too. And, and uh, I don't take claim for, you know, I don't take credit for his deadlift program. That was, uh, it was Eddie Cohn that did that. So I guess long story short, no, uh, um, we didn't really work together. We worked separately on the same athlete. And yep. he uh, respected that, that I 
you know, I focused on nutrition and, and uh, he focused on the training portion. And we reached out to whatever resources we needed along the way to make sure that Hofthor got what Hofthor needed. Yeah. Awesome. When are you coming out to a big, uh, to Australia, big man? You know, I've been threatening to do a tour down there for years. Everything. So I was down there with Scott Lawson up in the, the North, uh, what's that, uh, oceans. What's that? Uh, um, Queensland. He was up there. What's that? Queensland or Gold Coast? Or? Yeah, Gold Coast. Coast. Yeah. Yep. It's been some years ago, but I had a great time. We toured around a little bit. So I've been threatening to come back down there. Obviously, I work with Stephanie Sanzo, and I'd love to come down and do some uh, seminar with her and her husband and, uh, uh, you know, get together with the Australian strength coach and, and do some stuff down there. So maybe this winter, maybe December, January, in, which is our winter, would be your guys' summer. Uh, like to come down and put together, you know, five or six different, get on the road and do, do a, yeah. a host of different seminars in some different cities and, I do it. and meet the folks. I've, I've got a lot of, uh, I get a lot of great feedback. I have a lot of support from the folks in Australia and I really appreciate it. I think it would be about time I get back down there. Mate, love to have you out here. Yeah, definitely. Mate. Get you in, get you into our facility for a session, mate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Now we'd love to have you out here. Definitely, mate. Anything awesome. else you want to chat to be out? Mate, we go go all day to be honest, mate. <laughs> <laughs> the questions we had written down, we didn't even get to them because I think yeah. it's um, nah, it's been awesome to chat, mate. Um, wealth of knowledge, wealth of knowledge. Where where can everyone find you, big man? Just Stan Efferton? Yeah, everything's at Stan Efferting. My Instagram is at Stan Efferting. I try and respond to people that uh, send me DMs. Usually, it's uh, it's somewhat overwhelming. I get forty or fifty a day. Yeah, yeah. Um, my website is StanEfferting.com, and I have my ebook on there. The same program that we just discussed. It's two hundred and twenty pages. It's the same one I gave to Hawthorne, to Shaw, to Dan Green, to you know every athlete I've worked with. I, I send them a copy of this. It's it's a compilation of everything that that I want my athletes to do, and I've. Uh, I've made it very comprehensive, kind of takes me out of the, uh, the loop and gives them everything they need. Um, and then my YouTube is uh, Stan Efforting. There's some great rants on there that, uh, that I've worked hard to put out over the years. I've kind of haven't updated them very recently because I've kind of run out of material. I, I, I tell everybody the same stuff. I'm just hoping that they'll it'll sink in and they'll actually start doing it consistently. Yeah, yeah. No, I um, I think I've got all three of your eBooks now. The Vertical Diet, the three of them, isn't there? Yeah, I'm updating yeah. them. I started out yeah. with the 1.0 and then the 2.0 and the 3.0, uh, so that I could keep adding new information. Hopefully, you got the subsequent uh, up, updates for free because that was the goal. <laughs> uh, I, I better check that up. Actually, I'll be hitting you up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no refunds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> 100%. No, I can testify, though, though, they're definitely worth getting. There's valuable information yeah, in there. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, that's, that's like I said, that's helped me heaps, helped me heaps. Um, and then, um, obviously passed on to clients from that as well. So it's been awesome. All right, big man, we might, uh, might leave you there, let you go. It's probably in close to dinner time, is it? Looking hungry. Awesome, gentlemen. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Looking Thanks. forward to seeing you sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> Mate, 100%. <laughs>